Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay Podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about The Little Things by John Lee Hancock. And specifically, what we're going to be looking at is how do you land a trick ending in your screenplay? Now, if you haven't seen The Little Things yet, don't worry. I am going to talk about a lot of the plot, but I will not give away the big surprise until the very end, and I promise I'll warn you before we get there. And if you have seen the movie, then you and I probably can agree that it has what should be a really badass trick ending. It has the kind of trick ending that we all kind of look for, right? That wonderful moment that seems connected to character, that has emotional stakes to it, that surprises the audience, right? And that even is a riff on the title of the script. It's a nice little moment, or it should be. But somehow the trick ending just kind of leaves you cold. It just doesn't totally land. In your head, you go, oh, that's interesting. If you didn't see it coming, and there's a good chance you did if you know these movies well. But if you don't know these kinds of movies well, there's a good chance you didn't see it coming. So in your head, you go, that's a cool trick ending. But in your heart, you don't really feel the trick ending. The trick ending doesn't really land. And that happens for a very simple reason. Uh, often when your trick ending isn't landing, or for that matter, when any element of your script isn't landing, you know, you, you go back to your rewrite and you start to get focused on the details. And of course, we could talk about all the little details of the little things too. You know, we could talk about the kind of clunky exposition at the beginning where we're told again and again and again and again about Denzel's nervous breakdown and what a messed up cop he was before he lost his job and ended up at this crappy little precinct. We could talk about the good things about the script. We could talk about the wonderful performance of Jared Leto's character and the nice little twist on the serial killer that we see with him. We could talk about the cool 90s throwback stuff and the old technology of solving a crime. We could talk about the the pacing of the script and that kind of throwback pacing. So there's a lot that we could talk about. And these are the things, especially when something big isn't working in our script, that often we get obsessed with, right? All those little details. Oh, no, I messed up this little line of dialogue. Oh, it's this. Um, but what I want to tell you is that these are the little things. They're not the big ones. And as screenwriters, we actually have to make sure we take care of the big ones before we take care of the little things even if we're writing a script called The Little Things. Um, the reason the trick ending isn't landing has absolutely nothing to do with all the little clunky execution issues in the script. And there are lots of them. But they're not actually the problem. The truth is the script could survive those clunky issues, even though I wish the writer had cleaned them up. The real reason the ending doesn't land comes down to what almost always gets in the way of trick endings. It's all about the character. The first key in landing a trick ending is making sure that the trick ending isn't just happening for the audience. It's also happening 
for the characters. And that's especially important if you're writing a two-hander like this. By two-hander, I mean there are really two characters in The Little Things. Sure, you have the Jared Leto character, Albert Sparma, the serial killer, and he gives a fabulous performance and he's a really fascinating dude. But the hunt for the serial killer in The Little Things is really not very interesting. There's really only one potential guy who could have done it. Um, and we've seen this kind of tracking stuff in everything from Law and Order to Dexter. So there, there's nothing new here. The drama can't be about catching the serial killer. The drama has to be about the relationship between Deeks and Jim, between Denzel Washington and Rami Malek. It's got to be about those two characters. We need the journey to take place between those two characters so that that end can actually land, not for us, for them. We need to feel that huge switch, that huge twist, that huge flip of the emotional and thematic stakes, not in our heads, but in our hearts. We need to feel how that moment changed everything for those two characters. Um, if you want a great example of a movie that did this, you can look at The Sixth Sense. Um, in fact, you can listen to my podcast on The Sixth Sense because a lot of people think, oh my God, when, you know, uh, in order to write a trick ending, you, you, you probably need to know where you're going, right? And, and in a way, that's true. In order to land the trick ending, you need to look at the beginning of your script and you need to make sure that when you take the beginning and you take the end, that those two pieces are speaking to each other. Um, but often we end up writing without really knowing the ending that we're building for, uh, whether it's a trick ending or anything else. Um, in a lot of our screenplays, we'll realize that what we actually think is the end is actually the middle. That as we write the script, we find that it goes to a much deeper and more complicated place than we ever could have imagined when we first sat down to write it. So... That means that once you find that great trick ending, or that great ending of any kind, you need to work back. You have to look at where you started, and you need to look at every element that brought you there. And you need to make sure that you're not just building the plot that leads to the trick ending, which, quite frankly, the little things does quite clearly, but that you're also building the structure and a lot of writers get really hung up on plot and structure, right? They use those two words interchangeably, but they're so very different. Because the plot is just the shit that happens in your script, just the stuff that happens to happen to your character. But the structure, the structure is the choices the character makes in relation to those things. It's the choices they make in relation to the plot and the way the, those choices change them forever. And in a movie like The Little Things, a two-hander, it's the choices that Denzel Washington and Rami Malek, that Deke and Jim make in relation to each other that need to build up to the emotional stakes of the trick ending. So getting back to The Sixth Sense, as I mentioned in that podcast, M. Night Shyamalan had no idea when he started writing that script 
that Bruce Willis's character was dead. He had no idea what the trick ending was. It wasn't until many, many, many drafts into writing that script that he realized, oh my God, this guy is dead. And that's his quote. That's not my words. Oh my God, this guy is dead. And, and just listen to that. That's not, oh my God, I could make this guy dead. That's, oh my God, this guy's dead and I didn't even realize it. What's so cool about The Sixth Sense is that that M. Night Shyamalan realizes it, the audience realizes it, at the same moment that Bruce Willis's character realizes it. And what he did from that point was many, many, many more drafts where he worked back from that trick ending and created the structural journey for the character that was going to let it land emotionally. And what that looks like in the final draft is so powerful because you have this character and all he wants is to help this boy, this kind psychologist who just wants to help this boy. And around him, his relationship is devolving and he doesn't know why and he can't seem to connect to his wife and he's losing his focus, but he knows that he has to help this boy. And it's not till the very end of the movie that he realizes it's actually the other way around. That even though he is helping this boy, this boy is also helping him. That he's the one with the bigger problem. He's the ghost who doesn't know he's dead. And you can see that that moment isn't just a surprise for the audience. It's a complete flip for the main character. It's a complete uh, reversal of the emotional and thematic stakes. It's a complete change from who he thought he was to realizing who he really is. It's the completion of the character's journey and his change in the script. To look at another even more complicated trick ending, we could look at a script like The Usual Suspects. Um, and if you watch The Usual Suspects, what you'll realize is what makes that trick ending land is not learning that Verbal was lying and happened to be Kaiser Soze all along. That's just an intellectual trick. And in fact, that intellectual trick doesn't even really lead us anywhere. You can't actually look back at the usual suspects and go, oh, now I understand what really happened. No, actually, all you know is that, that Verbal made some stuff up. The stakes don't come from the trick ending of us realizing verbal is Kaiser Soze. That's just the intellectual part. The emotional stakes come from watching verbal's journey. And what we're watching over the course of The Usual Suspects is this man who believes he knows who he is get broken down. We watch him be forced to recognize that the friend that he trusted, the friend he's been trying to protect, in fact betrayed him, that there is no one looking out for him, that he's been exploited because he's weak, because he's a cripple. He's been exploited by his friends. He's been exploited by the man he most admires in the world. And he's been exploited by this Detective, he's the one who has no power and they have all the power in the world. And because we watch him get broken down, even though that's not true, we still go on that emotional journey with him so that at the very end, whoo, when we flip it and we realize that he had the cards in his hand all along, that he actually was the one with the power, that he actually was Kaiser Soze, it's a complete flip 
in the power dynamic of how we experienced the character. It's that flip. It's mourning with him and then watching him whoo, flip back up to the top of the world that gives us the emotional experience of that ending, that makes that ending actually matter. Your ending, just like everything else in your movie, only matters in relation to the main character's journey. Now, most trick endings, most trick endings go awry for a different reason than the trick ending of The Little Things goes awry. Most trick endings go awry because the writer, having figured out this incredible trick ending that no one's ever thought of before, ends up hiding all the details that would allow you to actually get invested in the character. Oh, this can't happen because it would give away the trick ending. Oh, they can't make this choice because it would give away the trick ending. Oh, they can't do this because it would give away the trick ending. In fact, you can see a piece of this in Denzel Washington's character. Now, without giving too much away, um, we know that something happened to Denzel that caused him to have some kind of really dark, nervous breakdown that caused him to lose the respect of everyone else on the force, that caused him to basically hide himself away in some crappy desk job at some crappy police precinct. And we know that something happened. And it's, the writer doesn't want to let us know what happened until the very end. And it's handled at the very end with a flashback. And... Oddly, you don't feel a lot when you experience it, even though there are a couple clues along the way that finally make sense. Um, this is the classic problem. Uh, this is uh, if they had just allowed Denzel to wrestle with what happened to him, to share what happened to him with Deke, to confront his old boss about what happened to him, to actually come to grips with what happened to him over the course of the movie— it might not have that element of the trick, but it would probably be a more interesting movie because we'd actually get to feel him go on a journey in relation to that element. Instead, because we don't even know what he was reacting to, we don't even know what changed him, when we finally find out it barely matters to us because we weren't on that emotional ride with him. And similarly, it forces so much to happen in exposition from other characters because we just can't allow him just to talk, just to be real. It also gets in the way of building his relationship with Rami Malek's character, with Jim, right? Because they, he can't talk about his experience. And in fact, it's that experience that is ultimately going to link him to Jim. That's actually going to allow these two very different men to understand each other. So that is the standard reason why, uh, why trick endings get in the way. And my rule for myself, I learned this the hard way. I was writing a script called Love Morietta. It was a big assignment job. Um, no one was asking me to write a trick ending, but along the way, uh, the story is based on the true story of Joaquin Morietta, who's actually the inspiration for Zorro, and it's an awesome, awesome story. And But along the way, I came up with the coolest trick ending ever. And boy, did it mess up my script. Um, it messed up my script because at that point in my career, even though I was working professionally, I actually didn't have the craft yet 
to land that trick ending. And what ended up happening was I had to hide so many incredible elements of the true story in order to get to my trick ending. I had to not show so many elements to my, to my audience that by the time we got to the trick ending, at least in my early draft, I eventually got it better. Uh, but what happened was you didn't care because you hadn't connected to the character in the first place. So if that's your problem, then you don't even need to listen to the rest of the podcast. If that's your problem, you can do something very simple, which is just ask yourself, what would happen if I stopped hiding anything from my audience? What would happen if I let the cat out of the bag? And that's the rule for myself now. At the moment that I realize my trick ending is getting in the way of the drama, I let the trick ending out of the bag. I just let the story happen. And I get it down truthfully. And one of two things will generally happen along the way. Either an even better trick ending will come to me, which means my script just got even better, or I'll learn what the real bones of the script are, what the real relationships are. And then it becomes easier to work back in with your scalpel and go, okay, how am I going to hide this piece? Or how am I not going to show this yet? Or how, what's another way around this so that my trick ending can actually land? So if you have the problem that your trick ending is tying your hands behind your back as a writer... Free your hands and know you'll have plenty of time, just like M. Night Shyamalan, to work back into your script to find a way to make that trick ending land once you know the real route by which you got there. But the little things, the little things actually goes astray for a different reason. It's actually not the flashback about Denzel that destroys the trick ending. Because the writer actually has a much more interesting trick ending up his sleeve than the little flashback about Denzel. So the truth is, even though, again, this is not the best writing, the script could have survived that. The script in this case could have survived the not-so-important flashback. It could have even survived the, the negative effects of not allowing Denzel to actually process his journey because you were trying to hide it from the audience. The main reason the trick ending doesn't land in the little things is actually because the writer loses track of his own brilliant premise. The writer loses track of his own brilliant characters. The, the writer loses track of the thing that makes the characters so darn interesting. And when he loses track of that, what ends up happening is the engine for the trick ending, the, the structure that was going to make the trick ending work, ends up falling apart. And this is really sad. Um, and we see it actually all the time. Because here's the thing, uh, The Little Things is not a bad script. The Little Things is actually a good script that got shot a couple drafts too early that simply needed more revision. And the odd thing is, the revision didn't require John Lee Hancock to come up with a single thing that wasn't already in the movie. It actually just required him looking back more specifically at what he set up 
and asking himself how he can keep doubling down on the great idea he already had, rather than losing track of it as he finds his way into the middle of the story. So I'm going to talk about what that thing is. Here's the setup. You got two cops. You got Deke, played by Denzel Washington. And Deke, he's a character we've seen before. He is the old, grizzled cop who has seen too much, who has escaped the big city precinct for a little job where nothing bad happens. And now he's got to go back to the big city. Now, we've seen this character before. The old grizzled cop is like one of those tropes we've seen a million times. But there is an interesting element to that character. Now, we don't actually get to see that element, but we're told about it. Not in good exposition, in crappy exposition, but nevertheless, the writer has a really good idea. And his idea is that Deke might not be a good cop. In fact, no one seems to like Deke very much at all. It's not just, this is not the character from Seven. This is not Morgan Freeman from Seven, the cop who has stared at the face of evil and doesn't want to see evil anymore and is running from it. This is a cop who didn't just have a nervous breakdown, but did something that no one's talking about, but that no one respects him for. This is not a good cop. This is a bad cop who's seen too much. And when he comes back to his old precinct, there's Rami Malek, Jim. And Jim is the young, hot shot cop who has taken Deke's role on the force. And look, this is a character we've seen a million times before too, right? The young hotshot who thinks he knows everything teamed up with the grizzled old cop who's seen too much. We have seen this two million times, right? In fact, this is the Brad Pitt character from Seven. So again, though, John Lee Hancock has a nice twist on this, which is the way people are talking about Rami Malek. It seems like he is actually a really good cop. It seems like Rami Malek actually is everything that Denzel failed to be. The cop who knows more than Denzel, who's better at his job than Denzel, who's smarter than Denzel. Not the young cop who thinks he knows everything, the young cop who actually knows how to handle himself, who actually has a moral compass, who actually can somehow manage the pressures of the job and his lovely, perfect little family. The guy who represents everything that Denzel Washington wishes that he could be, everything that Deke wishes that he could be, that's Rami. So even though these archetypes are not new, the specifics of them are interesting, right? You got and that's part of where your hope comes from. We're watching this guy who feels like crap about himself and who everybody feels like crap about come in and there's this freaking superstar who's so damn good, who's so much better than him. This is the crappy exposition we spend a 20 minutes with at the beginning. And even though the execution isn't good, 
This is actually the writer knowing the right idea. This is his twist on those seven characters. This is his twist on the detective story. And what these two are going to go through together is a pretty procedural detective story that we've seen in everything from Law and Order to Dexter. But the relationship, the pressure on the relationship between this guy who feels like crap because this other guy is so much better than him and this guy who's really gotten it together but who's being broken down by the little things, the little things in his relationship with Sparma, the little things about this case, the little things between him and Deke, right? That's what this movie wants to be. And if you think about where we end in the trick ending, which again, I'm not going to let go yet for people who haven't seen it, but if you think about where we end, you can see how far that is from where the story started. The trick ending then would become part of the movement of these characters. So what happens instead? What happens instead is the same mistake that happens to a million writers. It happens to everybody when we... When, you know, we get lost in our writing and we come up with lots of different ideas and man, it's hard to orchestrate a cat and mouse between a complicated a serial killer and it's hard to orchestrate the machinations of tracking down the crime and it's hard and you come up with great scenes and things go wrong and you lose track of that really clear idea you had at the very beginning. You lose track of the structure. It's normal. It just needs to get addressed in a rewrite. So here's what happens. Even though we're told Deke is a lousy cop who can't be trusted, everything we see Deke do tells us that he is not a lousy cop, that these guys who are speaking this exposition are full of crap. We can see from the very beginning, Deke is a great cop. He's a smart cop. He's a dedicated cop. He's an ethical cop. Deke is everything you would ever want in a cop. In fact, Deke is the Morgan Freeman character from Seven. So we start off with this guy who's a twist, and then we end up falling into the cliche of the grizzled old cop who nobody respects, but who's seen it all. So when we get to the end of the movie, which I'm going to get to, we don't end up feeling like Deke moved. We don't end up feeling like Deke changed. We end up feeling like, well, he was a grizzled old cop who saw it all and knew how to handle his stuff. And at the end of the movie, he handled his stuff. And similarly, when we meet Rami Malek, when we meet Jim, we're told what a hotshot, brilliant cop he is. But we never see him be that hotshot, brilliant cop. Instead, we see him be a relatively dumb cop. We see him slip into just being the Brad Pitt character from Seven. So we want to believe that Deke is a lousy cop, but in fact what we're seeing is a guy who is so passionate about his job and so good at his job that he actually can't let this crime go. And that he's actually going to take off work from his real job to go track this case because he just needs to do what's right. We're watching this guy who knows how to solve the case and knows that nobody can solve it as well as he can. And then you're watching Jim, whose job is to solve the crime, who is unfortunately poorly equipped to do so. 
And so over time, it's going to push those two cops together to try to solve this case. And eventually, we're going to see those two guys stalking Sparma outside in the car, watching his every move. They are losing the cat and mouse game. He is outsmarting them. But they know as long as they keep their eyes on him, at least nobody dies tonight. So they're in the middle of this very long stakeout with a guy who knows he's being chased and who is outplaying them at every turn. And then what happens is the logical thing for a movie like this. Deke decides he really, really, really needs a cup of coffee and gets out of the car and leaves his not-so-bright partner all alone. And of course, the moment that he's done that, what happens? A payphone rings. And Rami Malek, Jim knows he should not answer that. He knows that this is part of the game that Sparma is playing, but he just can't help himself. And he picks up the phone. And then a surprising thing happens. A fun thing happens. By the time the scene is over, Sparma has confessed to the crime and has offered to take Jim to find the bodies. Now, this is not an entirely new thing. We've seen a similar scene, in fact, in an episode of Dexter. And if you remember Seven, the serial killer turns himself in halfway through the movie in order to play a more complicated psychological game with Brad Pitt's character. So it's not entirely new ground, but nevertheless, it's surprising and it's fun. So Jim knows he should really wait for his partner, but instead he gets in his car and he drives off with Sparma to some really weird place in the desert behind a fence where he starts digging for bodies. And of course, Sparma is playing his little game and he convinces Jim that Jim should do the digging. And you're watching Jim and you're going, man, I wish you weren't so dumb. Because he is wearing himself out, digging for bodies he's not finding. And the more he digs, the more tired and the more uncareful he's getting. And we, as people who have watched serial killer movies, know you do not, first off, even get in the car with a sociopath. But more importantly, you don't do all the digging, wearing yourself out while basically waving your gun around inches from the hand of a guy who could easily kill you. So we are watching and we are going, oh crap, Jim is good as dead. Which makes it actually a nice surprise when it's not Jim who ends up dead, but Sparma. What happens is the little cat and mouse is happening. And Sparma finally says something that pushes Jim too far. He threatens Jim's family. And before he knows it, Jim has hit Sparma over the head with a shovel. And Sparma is dead. And again, this is not new. We've seen this moment in Dexter. But it is surprising. And there's a nice little game the writer is playing by directing your attention towards thinking that Rami Malek's going to die to make that moment where he kills Sparma more surprising. But unfortunately, even though this works for the plot, it works in 
a plot way in getting the right the character to that direction. It doesn't work in a structure way. Because it undermines our belief that Rami Malek was ever good at his job. It undermines our belief that Rami Malek was actually smarter than Deke. Though Rami Malek was actually more talented than Deke. He just seems like a dumb cop doing a dumb thing. And so even though plot-wise it gets us where we want to go, structure-wise it completely destroys our belief in the character. And it, it destroys our understanding of the character's journey. We're not watching a guy get broken down by the little things. We're not watching a strong, smart man getting broken down by the little things. Instead, we're watching a dumb cop who can't control his emotions do something stupid. So Deke shows up and he finds this mess and he does what any grizzled old cop will do. He decides to save this young man. He's going to take care of all the evidence. He's going to go to, uh, to Sparma's apartment and he's going to make it look like Sparma fled so that everyone will think that Sparma did it and no one will know that Jim killed him. And all Jim has to do is bury Sparma's body. But of course, when Deke comes back, and it's not exactly clear why he has to come back since Jim has a car and supposedly should be able to drive himself. But regardless, when Deke comes back, he of course finds that Jim has not buried the body. That Jim has dug and dug and dug and dug and dug and dug looking for these other bodies that Sparma potentially murder because Jim is now having his own nervous breakdown, a nervous breakdown pretty similar to the one that poor old Deke had many years ago. He's having his own nervous breakdown because he's afraid he killed an innocent man. He's afraid that maybe he has become the monster he was hunting. And if that's true, he's not going to be able to live with himself and this would be a really powerful moment. And it is a really powerful moment, but we don't feel the powerful moment, and the reason is we don't believe it. If John Lee Hancock had doubled down on the Rami Malek character that he set up, we would believe him at this moment. If Rami Malek actually had a moral compass and had great ability and had everything under control, and was super smart and always played at his top of his intelligence. And if he had really gotten broken down to the point where he snapped, what that would do is it would create a reversal for that character where we were there with him and we understood his devastation. But the fact of the matter is that Jim we met can't even handle the fingerprint guy. The Jim we met doesn't even know not to wave your gun around unprotected in front of a serial killer. And more importantly, the gym that we met doesn't have a strong ethical compass. In fact, the gym we met was trying to convince the fingerprint guy to frame Sparma because he didn't have enough evidence to prove that it was him. To make things even more challenging, the reason that that we're supposed to believe that Jim is having this crisis of confidence, the reason we're to believe that Jim is having this mental breakdown, that he might have killed an innocent man, all hinges on one idea. 
that Sparma, despite being obviously sick and obviously menacing, has a history of confessing to crimes that he could not have committed. So if this is true, it means that in a moment of weakness, Jim really has killed an innocent man. Again, so we have the problem that that doesn't seem to matter because Jim never seemed to have a real ethical compass in the first place. But we have an even bigger problem, which is it's hard to believe that Jim doesn't believe that this guy really did it. It's hard to believe that Jim isn't convinced that Sparma did it for a couple of reasons. Number one, Deke is convinced that Sparma did it. And Deke is a damn good cop. Number two, Sparma's played by Jared Leto. So we're convinced that Sparma did it. Number three, Sparma's the only candidate for having done this. He's the only character in the movie who can possibly be a suspect for this crime. So we as an audience don't even have the possibility of imagining that somebody else did it. And number four, the girl from the very beginning of the movie who somehow survived, she catches a glimpse of Sparma and she seems to recognize him. So we got these four elements that are all telling us the audience Sparma did it. We have Jim who believes that Sparma did it. And we have Deke who believes that Sparma did it. And so it's almost impossible for us to make that flip with Jim, to actually believe he's going to have a nervous breakdown over this. Because number one, he didn't have the ethical compass to start with. Number two, solving the crime was always the most important thing to him. And number three, he and we and Deeks are all 100% sure that he killed the right guy. So all of this is building to the trick ending, and you can see these little elements, right, just not being true to the original conception of the character is what is getting in the way, right? Because it's robbing us of the emotional stakes so that even though the character seems to be having a nervous breakdown and Rami Malek is doing the best damn job he can as an actor to portray the nervous breakdown, we don't feel the nervous breakdown because we don't believe the nervous breakdown. Similarly, because he never started in a strong moral, ethical, or intelligent place, because he hasn't played at the top of his intelligence, we never get to really understand what were the little things that broke him down. What was it about Jared Leto that broke him down? And that means that despite Jared Leto giving a truly extraordinary performance, we never get the full cat and mouse game that we really came for, the psychological one that twists us. Now, I want to be clear, this is not Jake Kruger's solution to this script. This is not me saying, in order for a script with a trick ending to work, we must have really unique characters, and Denzel Washington character for this ending to work must be the truly not-so-great cop, and in order for this to work, Rami Malek must be the truly intelligent, great young cop. It's not my answer, it's John Lee Hancock's answer. This is me just saying yes to the things that John Lee Hancock worked so hard to establish at the beginning. It's not even the cliché that's killing these characters, because the truth is, in Seven, these same clichés worked great. And the reason those clichés worked great in Seven is because in Seven, it was connected to the emotional journey. 
The problem of the Morgan Freeman character in Seven is that he has seen too much evil and he doesn't want to look at evil anymore. That's where he starts. And the problem with the Brad Pitt character is that he sees everything in black and white. There are good cops and there are evil criminals and these two kinds of people have absolutely nothing in common and there is not a single shade of gray in the universe. So you have this guy who thinks it's all evil and you have this guy who thinks there's good and evil and these things are, are strongly opposed and there's a line between them. And over the course of the movie, what we watch is these two perspectives flip. We watch Morgan Freeman stare the greatest evil in the world in the face and come out the other side. So he does the thing he didn't want to do. He looks straight into the heart of darkness. And he comes out the other side, not at Brad Pitt's place, but at a more nuanced place where he realizes that there are things in the world worth fighting for, that the world, in fact, might be worth saving. So that's his journey. And Brad Pitt starts the place in there's good and there's evil and I'm not evil, I'm good, and he's not good, he's evil. And he ends the movie having taken the most evil action possible and being forced to realize that the line between us and them is not so firm that he is actually capable as of the same ugliness as the man that he's hunting. And what's driving the killer is the desperate desire to prove that to people, to prove how close we all are to sin. That's what makes Seven work. You can see that that structure and that trick ending also grows out of the character. So you have to look at where your characters start and you have to honor your own instincts. But wherever you end up, it has to happen in relation to where the characters begin and who they are. And whoever they are, you want to be as specific about that. You want to double down on that. And as you change them, you want to note those moments that they change because those are the act breaks. Those are the structural waypoints that are going to lead to the emotional power of your trick ending. Okay, coming back to the little things. And now it is time to talk about the trick ending. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, plug your ears. Okay, so Denzel Washington comes back. He finds Rami Malek in the middle of a nervous breakdown. He helps him hide the body. Rami Malek tries to return to his home and he just can't hold it together. His little perfect family don't know this dark thing about him and he can't be the man he used to be for them anymore. And meanwhile, Denzel Washington is cleaning up the mess. And there's been one clue. There's been one thing that they're looking for. There's a red barrette that they believe if they can just find it, it will prove that Sparma killed one of these victims. They have a feeling that he likely kept it as a trophy since it's missing. And if they can just find it at his home, if they could just get into his home long enough and find it, it would be the proof that they need that he, in fact, is responsible. So they need this barrette. 
and they cannot find it. And Deke has cleaned out Sparma's apartment, and Rami is sitting at home, a mess with his family, and a package arrives from Deke. And inside the package, of course, is the red barrette. Ah, and we sigh a sigh of relief. Ah, and Jim sighs a sigh of relief. And everybody sighs a sigh of relief because we realize, okay, he's going to be okay. Maybe he shouldn't have killed him, but he killed a bad man. And nobody's going to die today because of what he did. But that's not the trick ending. The trick ending is that as we cut back to Denzel and we see him burning all of Sparma's stuff, we find out that the barrette did not come from Sparma's apartment. In fact, there's a brand new package of, of barrettes that Deke has just purchased that he has taken one from to send to Jim, to protect Jim from the emotional fate that he went through himself. That's the trick ending. And while you may have seen it coming, it's a beautiful trick ending. Or it should be a beautiful trick ending. It would be a beautiful trick ending if we actually had the structure, right, where the not good cop ends up saving the brilliant one. Where the guy who resented and was jealous of this guy who seemed better than him in every way ends up saving the ethical compass of the man he's come to believe in. Where the cop who thinks he's so much better than this lousy cop who keeps on getting in his way and couldn't hack it on the force ends up being saved by the man that he misjudged. And we could, if we built that ending, and if we built up to that ending, and if we felt the way that those characters affected each other, that would become a theme in the piece about the little things that bring us up and tear us down, about how sometimes we need to lie to ourselves in order to change, in order to look at ourselves in the mirror in the morning, about all those little stories we need to tell ourselves. And you could work back into the script and you could work that into the motivation of of Jared Leto's character, the monologues of Jared Leto's character, the reason for killing of Jared Leto's character, just like in Seven, that's worked into every aspect of the serial killer's plan. So when you're really going to land a trick ending, it's got to come out of those character beats, right? And that's a really interesting thing. There's actually not that much wrong with the plot of the little things. Which wrong is in the structure? And where does the structure go wrong? Not in the what happens, but in something called the how of the character. It's in the losing track of just how great and how ethical Rami Malek is, and losing track in just how off the rails and incompetent Deke is. It's by losing track of those two elements that we lose the journey of change that would have made this such a powerful movie to watch. Instead, we meet a Deke who's a great grizzled cop who knows how to handle complicated situations. And at the end of the movie, he handles it. And it doesn't feel like a journey because that's just Deke doing what Deke does. 
When we meet Rami Malek, when we meet Jim, we meet a dude who everyone thinks is great, but he's in way over his head and he's not so bright and his ethical compass is missing a couple of pieces. And when we get to the end, we find a guy who's over his head who needs the grizzled old cop to save him. And so the problem is not the cliché, even though the cliché is a problem. That's the little thing. The problem is that these characters aren't changing. Deke is just doing what Deke does, and Jim is just doing what Jim does, and even Jared Leto is just doing what Jared Leto does. And none of these characters are actually changing themselves at all. And that is the key to landing the trick ending. In fact, that is the key to landing any ending, and that is the key to any rewrite. You've got to look at where the character starts, and you've got to look at how they are changing. You've got to look at the structure by which they get from point A to point Z, and you need to make sure that you have built that in an honest and true way and taken that character or those characters on the biggest journey that you can build for them. If you do that, we will go with you, whether you've got a great trick ending or one that's not surprising at all. But if you don't do that, you can write the greatest trick ending ever, and we will not be moved, because it's the character's change that moves us. It's who the character is that moves us. It's the choices the character makes that move us. It is the structure of the character's journey that lands your trick ending every time. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to study with me, I have a brand new masterclass starting up on April 11th, and it is going to be incredible. Um, you can attend online through Zoom from the safety of your own home, and each month, one Sunday a month, we're going to do a six-hour deep dive into one aspect of screenwriting. From concepts like want and need and completion to uh theme to seven-act structure breakdowns of your favorite films and TV shows to concepts like engine, treatment writing, Bible writing, pitching, to meditative writing, isolating visual moments of action, writing for the inner eye, hypnotic writing, turning the formatting of your script, thinking about your formatting of your script like a poem. We're going to look at all these different concepts. Um, and the way we're going to do it is going to be a mix of lectures, question and answer, writing exercises, feedback, discussion. It's going to be a really incredible, vibrant community uh, filled with screenwriters as passionate as you are. So if you'd like to learn more about that, you can go to my website, writeyourscreenplay.com masterclass. 